all the emergency exit rows were taken. In honor of nonstop, obviously, what's your favorite movie hijacking? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going to say Captain Phillips, but I mostly mean the Captain Phillips scene in the video of the kids reenacting the Best Picture winners, because this is my boat! Hey, it's me, David the Seven. Arnold Schwarzenegger's spy from True Lies just takes an F-16 fighter jet from the site of a nuclear explosion directly into a major metropolitan area to rescue his daughter. Awesome hijacking. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Airheads, which I watched about 70 billion times on Comedy Central growing up, and because Lemmy is God. Airheads is still a terrible candy, by the way. I'm David Ehrlich, <laughs> and I'm going with Olivier Assayas' Carlos, which devotes an entire middle section of its three-part miniseries, five-and-a-half-hour movie, to the best hijack ever filmed of the plane variety, at least. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's, it's a Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 12 for February 25th, 2014. That's a Tuesday, in case you were wondering. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving the iTunes review. I'm going to have to read off three of your names who have given us iTunes reviews, even though I think Dave made them up to make them difficult to pronounce. You just uh, hurt Jashifma's feelings so bad. <laughs> Jashifma, I am baffled by your name, but I am so glad that you gave us an iTunes review. Uh, the Crab Thing, I understand your name, and thank you. And Luke Raffle Cakes, I enjoy your name greatly, and it is kind of hard to pronounce, but I like it anyway. And if you leave us an iTunes review, you too can hear me struggle to pronounce your name. So why not do it? It's easy and fast and free, and it helps us a lot. So thank you. Worry, it's getting crowded in there, and all my recent data points to something big on the horizon. What do you mean, the big? Well, let's say this Twinkie represents the normal amount of psychokinetic energy in the New York area. According to this morning sample, it would be a Twinkie 35 feet long, weighing approximately 600 pounds. <coughs> That's a big Twinkie. It's not good. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? Today, as we record this, Monday... Uh, Harold Ramis died, which came to me as a surprise. I had not realized that he had been sick for some time. Uh, Harold Ramis being the writer and director and star of a bunch of movies that everybody loves. Uh, most relevantly to our podcast history, which is not really the most important thing. Uh, he directed Groundhog Day, which we've talked about on the show and is maybe the movie that people thought of first when they thought of him. But they might have thought of Ghostbusters or Stripes or... The thing about a career like Harold Ramis is, is that there's so many different directions you can go to remember what he brought to the world. Um, and I, well, I wanted to start this conversation with Patches since he was the Groundhog Day <laughs> aficionado of this bunch. And I don't know. I always feel inadequate when it comes time to give obituaries for anyone. But I feel like you, out of all of us, could talk about Harold Ramis the best. Yeah. Uh, can we just reflect on the fact that obviously there have been a lot of people who passed away in the last few months and – I. 
you know, it, for some reason, it just doesn't seem like that many people died in the past. But obviously, they have every year, and maybe it's just like Twitter. I think or you're like dating social yourself, media, patches. or I think you're no, like I'm, I'm a coming of the age where people I like are dying now. It's not just no. old people. I didn't know who they were. No, it, well, I mean, Shirley Temple is both an old person and someone who died. So I mean, young people have many people have died young in my lifetime. Um, but it just seems that there's an echo chamber effect to someone's death. Um, for good and for bad, uh, when you have social media around or when we're all talking when we can all, uh, preach our feelings about these people in, in an open forum. But anyway, um, speaking to Harold Ramis, I was shocked as well. And clearly I have a, a, a love for Groundhog Day, which is my favorite movie of all time, which Harold Ramis did not write. Um, oh, I'm sorry. He, I, I said he directed it. I didn't say he wrote it. No, he directed it. I think he had a hand in rewriting the script to kind of tailor it to his sensibilities, to Bill Murray's sensibilities, to this kind of tour de force collaboration that they uh, put into this movie. I, I, I don't know who said it. When I, when I was kind of like flipping through comments. I'm also very bad, as we have exampled with Philip Seymour Hoffman, about commenting on people's death. I, I am not the type of person who runs to their DVDs and like, I must watch this movie right now to, to pay my respects to this individual. Um, I am much happier reflecting on my memories of these movies. Um, and I think there's an episode of uh, the, the old podcast that must not be named um, where we, we talk at great length about Groundhog Day. But I find it interesting that this kind of zany science fiction movie written by Danny Rubin um, was so out there, which had so much um, uh, explanation for why the things in Groundhog Day happen. You know, he was cursed by a, a gypsy at some point in the script, and he... <laughs> Uh, return to this life thousands and thousands of years uh, and and I just find that all interesting details that uh, Harold Ramis decided to leave out because the man knew what needs to be in a great script and what needs to be fed to a great actor and what we need to see and what we don't need to see and I think that's why I love Groundhog Day because Ramis someone mentioned that um, Ramis doesn't just shoot comedies he he really directs great films, even if he's doing something extremely silly like Vacation um, or, I mean, or some of his other silly. silly movies. Perfectly silly, yes. Well, I mean, you have to have a sense of craft to be able to make a really great comedy. I think that's what a lot of our modern comedies lack. You know, I think about something like We're the Millers. Sorry, Rawson Thurber. Um, <laughs> it's just shoot the shit kind of stuff. And Vacation is a movie. Club Paradise has a movie. There's an aesthetic to this film, and it's about locations, and it's about actors, and it's about setting up these scenarios. And Groundhog is easily the epitome of what Harold Ramis does best, orchestrating this action the, to, to be in a place, live it uh, day and day and day, day after day, um, where it could become so boring. Uh, and I think that's what comedies often fall into. We're in the sitcom locations, and when you're in a film, you really want to live a movie. Uh, you're not on a stage doing a three-camera sitcom or something. It, we need to feel – it needs to feel cinematic. And he was able to do that with talky comedies, and I always find that astonishing, especially with Groundhog Day, a very drab Pennsylvania movie. Obviously, that speaks to my heart as well. 
Um, uh, so Harold Ramis, I miss ban- you. <laughs> <laughs> on a much more banal note, I think he was also a great and a very underutilized movie dad. There was something. I mean, apparently, uh, you, you heard. I mean, you hear this a lot when anyone dies, but it seemed even more than usual with Harold Ramis that he was a very nice guy, and I think that his. Uh, general benevolence uh, in his attitude really showed through in films like High Fidelity where he played Rob's dad and Orange County and even in his like, one scene that I think he has in Knocked Up which is a, a very memorable one at least it was for me, no, uh, me he, yeah his screen presence just like really exuded this sort of I don't know. I was like, I'm not sure if that's the dad that I want to be, but I think it often reminded me of the dad that I probably will be, where it's just like, you know, I did my best. That's life, you know, <laughs> sort of attitude. Um, well, Harold Ramis actually, is the same age as our parents, which I think, I mean, for us uh, Harold Ramis is, is uh, okay. a fair bit younger than my father. He's about but. the same age as my parents, which I think was part, you know, part of that whole dadness. Anyway, continue. Yeah, and I, I just think that, um, I don't know, for whatever, for me... You know, as someone who always had a, a healthy respect for for Ghostbusters and saw Ghostbusters 2 in particular a billion times when I was growing up and stuff like that, I never really – like Egon never really meant anything to me. But his uh, his work in, in the dad trilogy or at least, uh, you know, or maybe it was dads and more things than that, but at least off the top of my head. Um, I just want to note that, that I saw somebody on Reddit post a picture that was captioned Egon. And it oh, was a picture oh of, God. like, <laughs> Ramus as Egon, but looking more like Slimer, which I thought was a really strange artistic decision. Um, congratulations, that person, you horrifying this beast of a human. This is why the internet, when people die, is maybe the worst, actually. Who will come out with the first great pun? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, that person. the person who left a Twinkie at the Ghostbusters firehouse, though, is a hero. So not all I, the internet is a bad thing. I actually really like that about it when uh, New York people die, that there's like the flowers left outside of some. I mean, I don't know where Harold Ramis lived. I don't think he lived in New York, but the Ghostbusters house feels really nice as opposed to like crowding around Philip Seymour Hoffman's house. Like go memorialize him in a public place. It's a there's a nice gesture to it. Yeah, I think the thing that Patches was trying to get to or actually probably got to but didn't say the actual words is Harold Ramis to me (laughs) was always a uh, his greatest uh job was sort of as the collaborator that you could trust with the actual final product like whenever he he joined a project or a group of comedians who had a rough idea of a story uh it's sort of seen that uh Harold Ramis or then obviously when he was working with you know Ivan Reitman it was two people who were really good at that but um taking what could be a comedy and then also being able to treat it like a movie which i think is sort of what patches was talking about is you could have people they're doing really hilarious sort of sketch comedy but you know aren't thinking about character cuz they're thinking about comedy or they aren't thinking about cinematics cuz they're thinking about comedy and you could always trust uh, Harold Ramis to come in and do that as a collaborator, as a director, as a writer. I I, I think it's hard to detect, especially with comedy directors, people who are great um, actor directors. I mean, do any uh, spring to mind? I'm curious and how you might detect them. I who think of someone like directors? actor directors who who lean towards comedy. I think of someone like um, Tom Shadiak. Well, Woody Allen's probably the best answer and the most obvious answer. I'm curious about people who have who are less prolific, perhaps, and who well now you know Woody's fallen from grace. So uh, if you've read that article online, where you if you if you ever 
if you don't want to watch a Woody Allen movie ever again, there's now an article online suggesting alternatives to, to all of Woody Allen's really uh, films. Yes, it's the most disturbing article I read Yikes. last week. But besides that, I'm thinking of someone like Tom Shadiak, who you know had this great partnership with Jim Carrey and did Ace Ventura uh, and Liar Liar, who just seems to understand what an actor is capable of and can put them in these totally different movies. And, and, you know, the, the, the work can blossom. The laughs happen. But I think uh, Harold Ramis, obviously, the Bill Murray connection really pushed that, um, but was able to do it with even with his Analyze This movies. You know, that Analyze This is a very funny movie. I'm not sure about Analyze That. I'd have to watch that again. Um, but Analyze This is a very funny movie. And even something like The Ice Harvest seems to really uh, mine a lot out of its cast. I don't think many people saw The Ice Harvest, sadly. Um, which was maybe a little trying to be a little too Cohen-y for its own good, but I'm sure that John Cusack's watching the Ice Harvest right now. That's all he does, actually. He was watching the Ice <laughs> Harvest before Harold Ramis passed away, and it just happened to be perfect coincidence. I don't want to make this conversation too much about people who we don't actually know, but I was reading the New Yorker profile on Harold Ramis from 2004. I, I'd never read it before today. I don't know if any of you guys saw it either. And he talked for a while about Bill Murray and how they didn't speak for, you know, this number of years and about uh, he talked about Chevy Chase and about Chevy Chase as someone who kind of lost the sense of who he was and what he meant in the world. And it's amazing to me that Harold Ramis kind of kept this menschment like reputation throughout all of this, despite so many people who we came up with really transforming and changing over the course of their careers. And I find that, again, despite not knowing any of these people personally, I find that admirable as well. It's not, I don't think it's easy to maintain that even sense of personality, which really spoke to, you know, who he worked with throughout his career and how many people wanted to work with him still. It may have helped that he was on the both sides of the line, mostly on the director's side in, for a majority of his career, not being like in deep in the acting world, which seems to have In terms of keeping warped. his personality on an even keel? Yeah, I mean, I think Chevy Chase is just like has become an egomaniac because of his stardom and because of his acting career, which was very, very successful for a long time. But Harold Ramis, you know, he acted occasionally, but really grew into a director after a fruitful writing acting career. Jesus Christ, are you the the name of this segment or Dave do you like sing a song about it or something to introduce the proper title of this um, I can just say that apparently this mini segment is called Patches Bible Mystery Round I don't know who actually came up with that I title. was going to come up with a theme song I just need something that rhymes uh, with, with ground Gr- round yeah <laughs> uh, um, um, pound crowned zound Patches, Bible mystery round. We're gonna drive by. Pip, uh, nope, nope. 
It's not gonna happen. <laughs> Actually, keep keep that in. That sounds pretty good. Anyway, okay. we are. Um, I've been asked for some reason to talk about mo- the movie coming out this week called Son of God, which uh, seems like it's inspired by uh, producer Mark Burnett's Bible miniseries from the History Channel. Of, uh, I guess last summer, smash uh, huge hit, smash hit. Yeah. Smash it every bit of the word. Um, yeah, I think. And obviously doing a movie made perfect sense for them. So they wanted to do a movie about Jesus. It's been a while. I guess the last one, the last big one was probably Passion of the Christ. Um, so they wanted to move, do a movie just about the life of Jesus. And instead of making something new, because, you know, the Bible miniseries was so huge, uh, it turns out, and I've attempted to actually get confirmation on this from many of the publicists and the people who are working on the film. No one will actually return my emails, but I'm about 98% sure of this claim. Um, Son of God, the new movie, directed by and written by Christopher Spencer, whoever that is, um, is, is basically just chopped up footage from the Bible miniseries. So they took all the stuff that was Jesus-related, chopped bits up, and... Put it on. Put in a movie. Now it's a movie. Um, they may have shot a, a little bit of additional footage, and I think there might be some new music. But for the most part, this is just a rehash. The con- it's like the Spark Notes version of the Jesus story uh, presented in the Bible miniseries. Now, I, 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 I for me, this is infuriating because, like, if you were a consumer, I'm guessing if you see Son of God, you've probably seen the Bible miniseries. That's, That's where it doesn't make sense to me. Right. So you're really just rehashing it for the audience that's already. Um, eating this up uh but maybe maybe as as people who are devout christians who really want more jesus content in their life um this they'll you know this just feels like a momentous occasion now they can go see it on the big screen not that the bible miniseries <laughs> looked that good on tv i mean the, it had some special effects i think i may have mentioned it when it came out last summer that this is very much a spectacle version of the bible with like action scenes there are parkour angels that pop up in the old testament i did not i did not get around to watching the jesus stuff because the first 2 hours were so boring uh, even with parkour angel- angels that's but, yeah that's impressive actually i know and but i would be infuriated if i was a moviegoer even i mean i guess if you really just need to see the life of jesus on screen again on the big screen this is the way to go um and it's, it's kind of preying on people's religion preying on their need to uh, to pay uh, for <laughs> woo! I, the, the one question i wanted to go out on this mini segment was I'm curious if there's something, if there's a miniseries that you've seen, perhaps, or if, if there's any way that this would be acceptable for you as a moviegoer. I know none of us are devout enough to perhaps pay money for something we've seen on TV already, but is there anything that you would have already seen? Now, I guess Fathom Events actually does this a lot. Our frequent guest, Jordan Hoffman, has has gone to a movie theater. This is such hearsay. I'm, I'm, I'm obnoxious. But he's... Um, Going to a movie theater to see episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay, so things you can watch on Blu-ray at home, he has gone and paid, maybe paid, to see on the big screen. Um, It's called repertory cinema. I know, but, like, for some reason, (laughs) movies seem more acceptable. Stuff designed for television that that you're paying to see. The only thing that matters to me about what we were talking about now is whether or not they were transparent in advertising that this is footage cobbled together from the miniseries. If they weren't, then it's almost criminal. And if they were, 
then then you choose to go, then that's your own problem. You got bigger things to worry about. It seems like they're not making a big deal out of the fact that this is reconstituted footage. Well, of course if, they're not. They want you to pay for it again. Right. So it's definitely on the bad side of the David Ehrlich thing. But on the other hand, oh, I'm trying to justify this. It's, it's very difficult. I, how different does the tale of Jesus need to be before you're willing to pay for it again? <laughs> Interesting that's, I mean, that's, consumer that's a question. Different, that's a good question, but I think it's a separate question entirely. I mean, I think that, like, really, this whole conversation, as I said, is about, you know, how much of a sham is this? It, it, it's, they're perfectly within the rights to cut together whatever, as long as they own it, and release it into theaters. I just think that it is, uh, you know, if I, if I, let's say that I was silly enough to want to see this but i thought that it was original production i had seen the bible miniseries which is silly to begin with and then i went and seen this unbeknownst to me it's recut footage i would not only get my money back i would you know write angry greenberg like letters yeah <laughs> uh but i think um uh with dave's question about you know bible stories might be a lot more relevant in a few weeks time <laughs> Oh, we're going to end on my laugh. Cool. Appa- okay. Apparently we are. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. Segment done. Son of God. snowballing out of a new york times piece in january um we're going to talk slightly about a salon piece that basically argues that there are too many indie movies but not necessarily because uh you know they aren't getting released in the theaters or whatnot but because of the economics of actually producing an indie movie and then flooding the film festival market and then having them sort of flood into these VOD markets and therefore diluting the pool. So even though it seems like we're getting more access to things, these entry points are actually being financially throttled. Did I dive too quickly just immediately into finance? Should I mean, I step back. Sure. I mean, basically what you're saying is that not like not only is no one seeing these, no one's making any money off of them either. That's right. And so it's uh, sort of the piece, the, the way the piece sort of, um, I guess makes its argument and how I've started off leading us off this segment, even though I'm sort of on unsure footing here is what it says that I agree with is that the artistry of making an independent film isn't necessarily a supply side force. So unlike, you know, we need more thumbtacks, therefore we make more thumbtacks. People seem to think that creating art is like, saying that you know you shouldn't restrict that because that's not necessarily consumerism 
but something like movies or something that's made by hundreds of people and entire systems that we built in the American economy to sort of make and market these things. So sort of diluting it with your small artistic personal vision, though it may be good for you, is probably not good for storytelling and definitely isn't good for the economics of filmmaking. Can I tell a little anecdote that I think ties into this that I told before the show? uh, So I am ostensibly still in film school. I'm in my thesis years, which means that I show up once every blue moon uh, and participate in very casual conversations with classmates and professors about where we are in various film projects and whatnot. And tonight I was in thesis seminar and my my thesis advisor is a very grumpy old man who used to shtup in his words – Ilya Kazan, second wife. That's the, and he's very proud. That'll come up in like your first conversation with him, uh, and that's just the kind of guy he is. Anyway, uh, a kid was presenting a script, and my professor said to him, "Like you cannot make this movie. This is a shit script. You're going to waste your time. You're going to waste your money, and you're wasting our time right now. Even just talking about it, it's beyond salvation. I don't buy the central conceit. I don't care that you bought the rights to this short story that it's based on, which he did, um, which seemed like an extraordinary step to me. But it just don't." bother and at least do some camera tests that are proof of concept that you can even pull it off what the industry needs uh, piggybacking on what dave was saying is more people like my teacher <laughs> uh, more or less but at various stages i think that essentially my overarching thesis and i'll give the floor over after this and see how i can plug this into the rest of the conversation is that uh i, I don't think we should discourage people from making more movies i think more movies is not the problem the problem is uh, there need to be better gatekeepers, and, and there need to be more gates, <laughs> and uh, there need to be fewer movies on the marketplace, but that doesn't mean there need to be fewer movies made. I think it just means that we, and I say we as everyone from film festival programmers to film critics to uh, academics to everyone down the line to people's parents who are looking at kickstarting their child's movie and actually reading the script and saying, Meh, <laughs> um, need to be a little bit more militant about uh, a little bit more critical. I mean, I think that, like, criticism has to pick up the slack so that uh, we can encourage the making of art, for the most part, um, while not ruining the economy. Expand on that, because how do you instill this mentality? How do you convince people to take more time? And how do you do this in a way that still allows the creative community to blossom when someone takes a chance on a script or tries to go out and make an improvised movie or yeah. does something riskier I mean, I that seems, you know, that's not as sturdy in, in the pre-production days. Listen, I don't have all the answers sway, all right? But like, you need, I, I mean, I, I think you need to come to the table I, with a better no, idea I, here. I, when people well, make well, these claims, I, people make these claims without really okay. having... Uh, a solution of any sort, even uh, even no, the grand yourself, kind. Don't make don't make offhanded Kanye West references that have nothing <laughs> behind them. To patches, who will then jump on them as if I was actually trying to say something. Uh, anyway, what I am well, essentially my only suggestion is that like we. There, I think it's, it's dangerous that you said. I mean, like, who am I or who is anyone in any part of the process to say this is not going to make for good art? I was thinking of, like, I'm writing a difficult screenplay right now, and I was thinking of, like, someone like Shane Carruth, who obviously is a, a very DIY and doesn't have a lot of people reading his scripts who are in positions to tell him no. Uh, but I can imagine, like, you're reading the script of Upstream Color, and you're like, what the fuck is this? And then you see the movie, and you're like, okay, that makes sense. Um, although we need people saying no at, at that stage, too. But I think that, like, you know, you have 7,000 new regional film festivals that exist to only give, uh, 
you know, useless digital laurels, as this to quote the Salon article, to films and then collect film submission fees that that need to go away. I mean, I think that like there, I, I mean, I, I think that. The problem that my job here isn't to say this is how you fix things, but I think that I don't mind echoing the sentiments of Manola Darge's article in the Salon article and saying that there is a problem. There is a problem that Chad Hardigan's movie, This is Martin Bonner, which premiered in the next section of Sundance to phenomenal reviews for the most part. It's a very small movie. It played for like one week at the IFC Center and made like 10 grand. I mean, like, that's a problem. It's a problem that films like Alex Ross Perry's The Color Wheel uh, are, you know, I guess in his case, it paved the way for him to make his new film, Listen Up, Philip, but that may not be a commercial success, even though it has bigger names to it. It's a problem when good films are not getting buried because of poor marketing, but are getting buried because the system is active. But I can't imagine a system them. burying something like The Color Wheel or This is Martin Bonner. I can't imagine other indie movies burying those movies. This is a problem with bigger movies, and this is a problem but with the, the sensibilities on, of audiences. How can this possibly be the problem with small movies? And if you let's Okay, so let's say you go on iTunes, and um, there are three new movies that week. And they all have so much more attention because the nation's critics are all talking about them. And there's iTunes write-ups that are a lot more in-depth about them. And they're getting a bigger place. There's not a million movies on Netflix that just pop up without notice, without any sort of direction as to what's worth your time and where to go beyond this useless star system that's sort of self-implemented or, you know, the who recommends what. I mean, I think, like, if the if it's possible to... I mean, it's never going to be possible with, with the way things are um, or are likely to be to have a grasp over the entire scene. But if it's possible to give people the impression that, it's, that it is possible to have more of a sense of what's happening so that people take a command in, in, their, in what they're yeah. watching and have like a better sense of what's out there. I mean, I think that like, it's, it's really tricky, and I don't have the answers, and I'm not ashamed to say that. I think that like, Kentucky Audley's response, uh, which was sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, White House petition you know, calling for the end of indie film and people to, make, not, to not make movies, for people to tell these people you know, no... I think it's valid as well. I think that the it's a simple matter of there are too many films, um, but the way the economy works is there's no – and the way like the whole – there's no really easy answer into how you can with any sort of benefit. Yeah, so I don't – I think that some of the – some of the ideas that the article on Salon offers are compelling. I think you know, placing an emphasis on screenwriting – Having a focus on labs, making sure that these – like if Sundance – and this isn't going to be an attack on Sundance, but I think that if festivals like Sundance have a higher premium on movies, worry less about staging more movies and more about staging better movies or, or you know, having it be more of a process or having short films. If there becomes a market for short films so filmmakers can succeed and fail on a smaller scale – so that there's more of a reason for them to graduate to features. I mean, I think there are little things that we can do. I certainly, but, I certainly uh, find the whole concept intriguing. Um, but then I, my mind plays devil's advocate to all these facts, like considering something like, oh, there's seven thousand film festivals out there, and all of them, most of them, are playing little crappy movies and giving away pointless awards. To me, it still seems valuable because one of those movies could be great and really special and get a community, a small community of people who can only afford to attend that one festival to rally for this person and Kickstarter his way but into a bigger happens? scene. And when I, I that, just, when it that feels restrictive. 
When does it really happen? I mean, I, mean, I don't know because no, some when, of the filmmakers that... I like might have come from that world. You know, I, I think of the comedy and Rick Alverson and wherever he came from in the small movies he was doing before that I haven't seen. I mean, he had to build off a career of tiny movies I never remember. Like, I'll, I haven't seen. And a lot of filmmakers when have. Last time you saw, when was the last time you saw a great film that had its world premiere at the whatever, whatever – um, and I, I, I mean, I, mean, I don't, understand. I don't attend enough of those festivals because I'm not in areas of that country. I mean, we are lucky to be in New York that have that has big festivals that can have big premieres. But you're never hearing about those movies. I I'm mean, not like hearing about them because people are. It's, it's again, it's a closed community where I actually I do hear about these films more because I've been writing for Hollywood Reporter Indie and trying to search for small festivals and small filmmakers who are trying to get smaller projects off the ground, trying to figure out who these people are and if they have an arc that can get them to bigger time festivals. Let's be honest. Sundance turns down short-term 12. Yeah, That's do. the kind of, I mean, the, the competition <laughs> is is too big. And the pe- the smaller voices out there making movies for pennies that might be intriguing uh, are, are enveloped in, in the swell of the industry. I mean, we can't... But I should clarify that I'm not advocating that the more power be instilled to a place like Sundance for like there to be fewer people, you know, uh, going curating what's getting there. I'm not advocating for that. At, at the end of the, at I, the end, of, I want to push this conversation forward in a way because I wonder. Well, I under. On, hang on, I'm just, I'm just saying that like there need. Let me finish my point. <laughs> like there, I'm not, I'm not advocating for more power to go to Sundance. I'm just saying that uh, I, there is a problem, and I don't think you're. Or anyone is doing anybody any good by refusing to recognize that because what you're saying is not working. There are not good movies at these festivals. They are sometimes good artists come, but you don't having, know that. Like getting a groundswell <laughs> of of support at these. But you're not. I mean, like you don't know that either, and that's the point. But because you don't have a solution, and we don't know what movies are playing at these small festivals, and we can only hope that they're good, and we can only make assumptions because no one's actually seeing all of them. And even Manola Darkus is only seeing the things that make their way to New York, and there might be an abundance of them because people can four-wall theaters, you know, people with big pockets who come from around the tri-state area, but again, these are this is a very localized scene, and people don't know what people are crafting across the country, and there's an amazing art happening all over the place and you're not doing a service to those people and now, how now i want to push wait i want to push this conversation okay. forward in a way because i want to know what consumers do let's stop talking about critics for a second and like the job of the industry to do uh, something how do consumers change this and make an impact on this problem no, because I they want to see good I movies think that the consumers i think the consumers uh, it's not the it's not their consumer's responsibility. I think it's our responsibility. It's the responsibility of everybody who's in the industry. I think it's the responsibility of critics to be to kill movies. I think it's the responsibility of critics to raise movies that need them and to go to those smaller festivals. If what you're saying is true, I mean there are some smaller festivals like the Sarasota Film Festival that are on my radar because they produce genuinely great movies. But there are six thousand nine hundred more that don't and just exist to accept these fees. I mean I think it's up to us to if, if we're going to you know play a role in this and I, I wish that I was uh, I could back up my words personally but you know reality has its own limitations of going to these festivals and seeking out these movies and and advocating them and and not not seeing something at a major festival that gets in there and letting it slide by unscathed simply because it got in there and oh it's six out of ten because I've seen it in a million the way way back I mean like no one who made the way way back should ever work again <laughs> like this is like uh, like I think that like we should we need it's our responsibility to make sure that the consumers can make sense of the movie landscape 
to make and and not just to make sense of it for them. I have a answer to your question, Patches. Uh, okay. Okay. So I think <laughs> I, I just figured you would say it. Okay. Uh, no, I I want to be. You need I want to. I want to have a dialogue. I want to have a dialogue with all of you. So I think step number one is don't crowdfund anything ever again. Uh, I think it's like been as a filmmaker or as a consumer. As a both. consumer, don't crowd make films you want to see. I think we've started enabling people that don't know what they're doing to the point that they're taking up important parts of a film economy for themselves, like interests that will never generate anything better. I'm going to challenge that with one very quick line so you can continue, yeah, but I believe that you should support films that after analysis and uh, looking at people's past work, you have a belief that the end product could be something special as yeah. opposed to a movie that I loathe, the Calvin and Hobbes documentary that I can't even remember the name of. Fuck yeah. it so much. Yeah. It's yeah, so Mr. terrible. No, that I is agree. clearly, clearly preying on people's, you know, what they love and their nostalgia. Now, so. now you're on the David side. The only safe way as a consumer and not as a critic is to stop enacting people that you think will do well or ideas that you think are good. You don't know. Well, no. I think you can know. There's a difference between funding a movie like Dear Mr. Watterson, which is just, oh, I love Calvin Hobbes. Here's 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. And looking at someone's body of work and seeing their films and believing in a project. I think that's a clear difference and one should be supported. Anyway, continue. Yeah, I mean, like, the thing is that, like, I agree with what Dave's saying about crowdfunding, but at the same time, when I'm coming to me to make that thesis film of mine, what, I mean, I can apply for grants, but, like, what other option do I have? Because everybody thinks that what they're doing is valuable. Well, yeah, so, but the thing is, is, uh, like, when I, David... I agree with Dave, but also I'm still probably going to have to crowdfund my David, when you go and do your crowdfunding thing, like, or even when you've done crowdfunding in projects in the past, that's not where the bulk of your funding comes from, because you need... To convince people to trust you, you need something that's beyond a you know, 15-minute video and a written explanation of how you plan for it to go because that's not it. If you are somebody that wants to support the making of film, don't crowdfund and think that you're changing anything. Go out and support actual films. There are fundraisers. There's somebody in your town who's trying to do something, and that takes an actual organization of physical people. Except they're and doing it through Kickstarter now, so I call bullshit on that. Yeah, but it's that's what I'm saying. That's the wrong way to do it. People that are like, I could only make my movie through Kickstarter don't know how a movie's made and they're doing it wrong. Anything that's 100% crowdfunded is not going to happen at this point. I haven't seen anything that's actually resulted in a movie that started 100% as a crowdfunded budget. Wait, that can't be true. That is not true. Indie movie, the game. Or indie... Indie game, yeah. the movie. Was indie 100% game, crowdfunded? Whatever. Dyslexia, the movie. Movie that dyslexia. One hundred percent crowdfunded movie. What? You can't one hundred percent. I don't think there's been. Okay, we'll we'll look into. Point I being is there's an game. entire there's an entire ecosystem of business here, and no one's saying that you should stop making art because you know Andy Warhol films are art and those didn't have huge multi million dollar budgets. What we're worried about is an economic ecosystem where something gets picked up and you pay X amount of money to the person that made that film, but they've been living three years of their life making a film hoping to get that money, and it can't be as much as it is for them to make it because there's a sloth of crap 
that's just clogging I, up every single pipeway from rentals to festivals to how many movies a theater is going to pick up out of the so-called indie sphere because they only have, feel like, X amount of studio dollars. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I want to be perfectly clear that I don't, I don't think that I, – I don't want to discourage people from making art by hook or by crook, however they have to do it. I just – there are too many movies that are on the market. It does make it exceedingly difficult for any of them to turn a profit, even great ones. Uh, and I do think there needs to be a better system in place. I think anyone would agree with that, but I think that we're all sort of at a loss as to what that system would be like, and that would be the most productive thing, maybe the next conversation. But I do think that in our arena, I mean, what we can do, like how can we prevent forest fires, is to be stronger as critical voices is to like when you see a movie at a festival i mean i i want to say movies like, at you're festivals added, is what you're saying you're you're added no your attitude should be like should this movie get out of here like what the i don't know i just i think that like we we are too complacent as critics when you read reviews from festivals of, of untold films it's too like you know we'll see what happens i don't but know but what about the movies like, that i know. loved that people hated i mean and they those should be buried those should be those should not make their ways into into if they don't theaters. if they no. don't reach a critical mass of uh, if, of acceptance maybe not no, but I mean a critical mass. Goodbye, the comedy. Well, some of the <laughs> some of the best films. Exactly, the comedy is a great example. I mean, if you, I think you know, probably was negative on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, it's like it, it's, so it's the comedy a, it's probably a didn't make any money. Game. Uh, the comedy probably didn't make any money, but um, you know, I just I, I wonder what we actually have the power to do uh, besides brainstorm better ideas that we obviously don't have yet. Uh, and and no, it's not as simplistic as just ganging up on movies and, and killing them with fire before they can get out of festivals but i do think that we need to make it we need we, like we need to be stronger i think that it for me beyond market saturation and overpopulation all the bigger things that are feeding into this goes into critics not like being too homogenized and 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 really needing to uh uh i don't know have have a clearer voice for distributors or potential distributors and what people are going to want to see I want to take the last word because I'm just going to take it. Uh, in defense of these uh, crappy regional festivals, festivals we were talking about, I uh, was on the jury at one of those small regional festivals. I would never call it crappy. The Indie Grids Film Festival in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and I saw a lot of movies that would never, ever make it into another festival and a lot of movies that I didn't think were good and a lot of really bizarre stuff by people who probably shouldn't be able to make movies. But I really valued the experience of seeing them. Like some of it is like legitimately outsider art and some of it was just regional filmmaking from a place you don't usually see movies from. And then going to these screenings and seeing local people getting to take part in this film festival and having it be part of their city and feeling like some amount of culture was coming to them. And, you know, the amount of movies speckled in there that actually were worthy of being seen outside of there made it feel like an event in this smaller place. And I'm not saying that isn't contributing to the general problem of there being too many movies. I mean, there is no distribution market at this festival. Who gives a shit if these movies never come out? Who who cares? Okay, that's what I was getting to. (laughs) It doesn't matter if these movies come out. It matters that, and, you know, I hope nobody got bankrupted making them, but I'm glad that I saw them, and I'm glad that festival exists, and I think there are... I hope somebody did get bankrupt. I hope someone went bankrupt making a movie that they loved even if no one picks up and no one cares. I, I genuinely do believe that. Make well, the movies but, you want to make. But the other but, option is they don't go bankrupt. 
But I regret <laughs> steering the conversation that way because that isn't really the problem. I mean, I think that the fact that these festivals exist to in- falsely encourage people who do want to get their movies out there and seen or taking their money for no good reason is a problem. But those aren't the movies that are clogging Netflix and iTunes because no. they're not getting distribution deals of any kind. No, they're not. Everyone loves art. <laughs> and Patches wants you to go bankrupt. And I don't know if I think anything. Bankrupt. I don't know if the abundance of movies is clogging Netflix. That is a Netflix problem, in my opinion. But oh man, it, that it, is it, a lot I, of things I, problem. You know what? You're you're right, uh, and you should include this in the episode because I think it's important okay, that Netflix right. and iTunes, Netflix and iTunes, and cable VOD, like the former Netflix, has nothing to do with iTunes and cable VOD. I mean, if there are fewer movies, maybe Netflix would be able to do a better job of presenting them to customers. But Netflix just sucks. So I mean, Netflix, I am shocked to see has like three rows of indie releases going because there are so many. But um, I mean, the fact that I can click a button and see "Let the Fire Burn," the documentary from last year, or Bro- "Broken Circle Breakdown," or all sorts of things. Uh, the square. Not... Yeah, but that's right on the live. homepage. They live on a streaming thing, which will never. It'll never be a theatrical run. So it'll never what? Be a DVD run. Who cares? So, like, some dude's, like, livelihood is doing 30 of these bullshit movies a year and gaffing for them. I don't don't know why that matters. Or he could just go join a union and live outside of Universal Studios in Los Angeles. I don't know. I don't really understand that complaint. Wait, are you complaining? So you're saying the guy is actually making a living from doing these and that's a bad thing? Because that doesn't seem like a bad thing to me. I'm saying that diversification is leading to, like, the cheapening of these industry jobs because it's not a... All right, so if nobody's buying the chair that you're making, you're not going to buy more people to make your chairs? Okay. But the, but the thing is, someone's always trying to make a movie. I don't know if I agree with that because in using this metaphor, someone's always trying to buy or someone's always always thinks building chairs is a profitable business. So when one person's chair business goes out of goes, goes under, someone else is going to build a chair and hire chair builders. Right. But the thing is, is that nobody's buying that many chairs. People but are the, buying like two chairs the, a year. Right. But the thing is, everyone's going to try and make chairs anyway, despite that fact. That's what I started out by saying, is that art is not a supply and demand thing. And what this article is saying is that the supply and demand of it is broken because of that reason. But because it doesn't – like, who cares? With- because people can – if people think they can make movies and turn a profit, then they should because it employs other people. And it doesn't matter if they fail because other people will try and make them. You're hard. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week for a slightly early review of Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel, although Patches may tell us all about nonstop if we ask him very nicely. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I will not stop talking about nonstop. Uh, I am at Patches, uh, rogue agent of the internet. I am on Twitter at Mr. Patches, writing all over the place, putting everything on mattpatches.com. And did you know that we also have a website? We do. It's called Fighting in the War Room. 
com, and we post the episodes there uh, and, and these pages. They got the comments and the share buttons, and it's a whole frenzy of crazy fun. I would highly recommend fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. Uh, I do nothing right now <laughs> except for yell on the internet. Uh, I'll be at South By as a jury, jury member on the documentary feature competition. So if you're at South By, please uh, do not hesitate to say hello. I'm much nicer and more coherent in person, or so I like to believe. You can find all of us. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And you can find all of us on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. Leave a message on our wall. It's a really good way to stay in touch. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell the first part DA7E. I mostly do uh, superhero movie news at latino-review.com on Wednesdays. You can call us and leave us a message at 914-410-6450. Give us something to talk about. I literally had to shout down David and Patches just a minute ago. So uh, it doesn't take much. Give us a ring. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. You can also find our entire podcast on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which is... In honor of nonstop, what's your favorite movie hijacking? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. falling apart I got this thing that I consider my only art of fucking people over